Well, uh, welcome to uh, again an episode of EFSA's interview, this time with uh, Dr. Dorothy van Dam. Uh, Dr. Dorothy van Dam was supposed to come to Amsterdam and hold this uh, interview in person, but she is currently quarantining in, uh, in, her, uh, in Belgium um, and she couldn't join us. So that's why we're doing it online. Um, Dr. Dorothy van Dam is a lecturer at the University of Louvain. She is also a research fellow at the Genesis Network and at the Center for Studies of International Crisis and Conflicts and also a longtime research fellow of uh, EFSAS. And she is an expert in international relations, especially on uh, focusing on Pakistan and the Pakistani military establishment. So Dorothy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Denise. Um, well, as, as we have talked about this, Dorothy, in the beginning, uh, is that it's going to be a, you know, we hope to have a very candid uh, interview with you, not only about the situation in South Asia, but also about you as a person academically. Um, and um, actually, I would like to start with, 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 with a bit of a personal question is that you, of course, are, you live in Belgium mm -hmm. and you uh, teach at the University of Louvain. So how does a Belgium lady end up specializing on international relationships, international relations, I can still understand, but on the Pakistani military establishment and Pakistan in, 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 in particular? Um, so I granted it's not obvious that a, um, a Franco-Belgian um, woman would would actually specialize on this uh, on this issue. So um, my story actually dates back to the to 9/11, uh, the the terrorist attacks. I was in the US uh, during the the terrorist attack in 9/11. Uh, I was doing a year of, uh, of exchange in high school, and 9/11 was my first day of school uh, mm -hmm. in Michigan. And that um, that made me um, un leave uh, these attacks um, in the American context, in the American uh, social context. And from then on, everything that happened in Afghanistan was really something that I was interested in. And I, I didn't even realize it, but I kept following the news. I kept following what happened in Afghanistan, etc. Um, and when I started my um, my studies, my master's degree studies uh, in political science and international relations, I started. Um, I I wanted to work on Afghanistan. That was for sure for me for my master's thesis. And I remember that you can't really understand Afghanistan if you don't uh, delve into Pakistan. And I started reading about Pakistan, and I remember being so incredibly frustrated because I could not understand that country and, and it didn't make sense to me. And, and I, I felt like I needed to, you know, understand it more, study it more to actually get something from, uh, from, these, uh, uh, from these two countries to, to get a sense of what was happening in the region. And I had the opportunity to do an internship in Washington DC with uh, Dr. Marvin Weinbaum at the Middle East Institute, uh, mm -hmm. who is an expert on Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I worked on, on Pakistan for three months and a half during that time. So when came uh, the time to think about a, a PhD uh, and a subject for my thesis, 
it wasn't even a question to me. I was working on Pakistan. And, and because I just wanted to understand that country, I wanted to understand its military because I, I got the grasp that the military was so important to understand the country. And I was really fascinated by it uh, because I couldn't understand it. So I basically devoted my past 10 years to trying to make sense of the country. <laughs> so you, you remind me of the book of, uh, the title of the book of Anatole Levin, Pakistan, a hard country. <laughs> So in, in exactly. your case, probably it's, it's, it's very much true. It's a hard country to understand. It is. <laughs> do you understand it now? I do. I do much better. Uh, there's, I, I, I don't think we can understand everything about any country uh, in the world. There are always some elements that are beyond our grasp. And that's just because reality is so complex. But I make sense of it. And, and nothing fundamentally surprises me about Pakistan anymore. Uh, and, and that is what I aimed. I aimed at understanding what was happening to really, uh, whenever there's something happening in Afghanistan, Pakistan, even in India, I make sense of it. And, and it just, uh, it clicks in my mind because now I actually understand it. And uh, you, you say you make sense of it. Of course, one of the reasons probably you did this is, first of all, you wanted to understand it and you wanted to make sense of it. How do you convey or communicate that sense to your audience? Because for them, it's much more difficult. Probably. It is. It is actually. It's something that um, I've heard uh, quite a number of times during my, my research when I was presenting it in Belgium or in other parts of the world that aren't so concerned about what's happening in South Asia. And I kept hearing, why do you work on Pakistan? Why, why do we care about Pakistan? And... Basically, I, what I try to convey is that first, every single country counts. So we have to understand all of them. And second, and that was my idea behind my research, was trying to make sense of it uh, really um, as a Westerner, uh, but as a Westerner trying to understand Pakistan itself. So what I tried to do, and this is what I convey, and, and usually that's, that works, is I try to convey that this is how Pakistanis see the world. Not, not how we wanted to see the world, because we have so much literature about how we feel about Pakistan as Westerners. What I wanted to do was how do Pakistanis look at Pakistan, look at Pakistan and the world from their point of view? And I think that's what uh, makes it interesting. And that's what makes it engaging for people that I, I try to adopt that perspective. And, and do you think that you say about how Pakistanis view the world, do you think there are also diverging views within that population? So it's it's the Pakistani population, civilians view the world differently than the army, than the politicians, and probably also ethnically different regions view it differently? Oh, definitely, definitely. There are so many uh, domestic um, debates and contestations about uh, Pakistan's place in the world and, and the policies that it should adopt. And that's actually something that's very fascinating about the country. Is there are so, so many differences, including, for example, among the population between the, the younger generations and the older generations. There's, um, I found that there's a, a lot of uh, differences about how they, they feel about certain countries and the relationship that Pakistan establishes with certain countries, etc. The army, of course, has a, a very specific point of view, which does not correspond uh, all the time with the population or with the civilian leadership. 
among the civilian leadership, uh, less to say, there are so many different point of views as well and perspectives about Pakistan's place and, and the politics that it should have. So definitely it's when, when you actually kind of open the black box of the, the social uh, puzzle that is Pakistan, you find that there are so many diverging views. And what's interesting uh, when you study the country is to see that despite those differences, there is um internationally one voice that just speaks louder than the others and it's the military and it's really the one that's the most uh, prominent uh, to uh to establish pakistan's place uh, in international politics and that's what makes uh, the military so interesting is that they actually managed to be the primary voice of pakistan including during the times of civilian leadership in the country and uh, that's of course that's that 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 is something which many people have of course pointed out about the military in pakistan and but just to briefly get it from you and your viewpoint why do you think pakistan is a very new country um it's it's not even a century old and why do you think that the military even in uh, you know in in recent times uh when social media and you know it's the information age and you talk about the new generation why do you think it has still been able to keep such a tight uh, hold over the country and its politics uh, like you say how can it succeed for so long doing that there there's a lot of reasons so i'll try to briefly explore some of them keeping in mind that i'm not being exhaustive here unfortunately i, I can't really delve into everything but um, among the reasons, the first one that we could point out is the fact that it is true that Pakistan is a very new country. Um, it, it, as you pointed out, it's not even a century old, but it, it did inherit from its history and in particular from the British Empire, it inherited a very strong bureaucracy and very weak leadership, civilian leadership. So when Pakistan became um, independent, there was already a strong bureaucracy in the country, uh, we, which uh, helped the military, uh, they, they built on this bureaucracy to actually entrench their power right from the start and to really get their ideational um, definition and understanding of Pakistan as the uh, dominant one uh, and the, the first one. So that is the first reason. The second reason is uh, that um, uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah died very, uh, very soon after independence, right? And he did not have the time to really entrench his own ideas and his own um, views of the, of the country. Uh, if you look at his uh, speeches, you could really imagine how Pakistan would have, would have evolved differently if he had stayed alive. But he was embodying the idea of Pakistan by himself. So when he died, Basically, there was everything was to be done because the the one person who embodied who personified the idea of Pakistan was gone. So who was there strong enough to actually keep that idea alive and and really help build the country and make it strong? The military, the bureaucracy, because they were there and because they were strong, uh, and they inherited a very um, a very um, powerful and competent um, tradition uh, from the British. And, they, and even before that, I mean, we know that some of those uh, 
tribe and ethnies were known for their martial uh, aspects. Uh, they were really good fighters from the start and they were very, very tenacious, very competent, very professional, etc. And that's that's their their history. Uh, so that's part of the of the reasons. After that, um, there was right from the start the the adversity with India, uh, India which um, which refused, which didn't want to recognize Pakistan because it wanted at the beginning to really reincorporate these uh, these uh, territories into its uh, its country, and that helped uh, the military build a an adversary, a common adversary to the whole country. And that is a, uh, a discourse that the military has been extremely su successful in maintaining over the years, over the decades. And basically it keeps on, on building that discourse that India still wants the destruction of Pakistan and still wants to reintegrate Pakistani territories into its country, which is not the case anymore. Nobody questions the, the existence of Pakistan anymore. But the military is very successful at maintaining that discourse. So that actually gives them a reason to be that strong. If you don't have such a, a superiorly, uh, conventionally superior enemy, you don't need such a strong army, right? So if you just keep on, on making sure that the army, the, the uh, society sees that enemy, whether it's true or not, you actually justify your own place. And, and that that is basically what they've been doing, what they've been very successful at doing. And they are they evolved in a way that is seen as very competent, very professional, very um, um, honest. They're, that's really the view that they they have among the society. And uh, in contrast to that, you have the civilian leadership, the politicians, and and they are seen as corrupt. They're seen as incompetent. They're seen as um, really. Um, um, basically just acting for their own interests and not the interests of the country. So you don't have a very strong civilian base to actually face this strong military. And I remember when I was in Pakistan, I was asking about, about that and to, to the population, you know, to, to civilians. And I was asking them, do you support the military? Just very naively asking them, do you support the military? Do you support the military's um, role in domestic politics because it's not democratically, it's not normal, it's not the norm to have such a strong military. And they, the, the answer that I got was, no, we don't, but the, um, the alternative is so much worse than we do. Mm -hmm. So in theory, the, the ideal type of Pakistan, no, we don't, but in the reality of Pakistan today, we do because the, the alternative, the other option, it's our civilian leadership, and, and really it's not enough to, to actually make a strong country. Which, of course, is a, is a, is a vicious circle because, exactly. um, you know, weakening the, the civilian leadership has been one of the uh, aims of the military to keep yes. itself in power, of course. Exactly. And plus, as long as the civilian leadership doesn't have this um, support and legitimacy from the population, it will keep on being weak because it needs the power, the support uh, from the population to actually gain strength and to face the military and basically kind of push back the military into uh, its, its normal role, right? So as long as the population doesn't support the civilian leadership, th there won't be any base support for that pushback. So the military will keep on having that very strong role.
And you talk about the, uh, you know, the enmity between with uh, India. Uh, it was very nice. You mentioned that Muhammad Ali Jinnah, of course, died very soon. Yes. Uh, and there was no one to take over the role of nation building except for the army. Um, while on the other hand, uh, Gandhi also died very soon. And there you had people like Nehru who took up uh, a nation building. Um, but, you know, what I always find very interesting is that this, this, this perpetual enmity with, with India keeps the army uh, very safely in its saddle. At the same time, this is probably also one of the most powerful armies who has never actually won a war. Um, so th that makes it very ironic in the sense that, yes, you need a powerful enemy to be in, in control, but then whenever you have a standoff, you also don't show, you know, you don't win it because armies are all about winning wars. Um, and of course, the, the cut off of Bangladesh, uh, which is felt in Pakistan very deeply because of the fact that India was, uh, was militarily also involved. So how do you reconcile these two things? Well, um, f first, um, when, you, when you actually talk to the military in, in Pakistan, uh, they, they don't have that, that same discourse and they believe that um, the uh, USSR's the defeat in Afghanistan was their own making. So yeah. according to them, they actually won that war. Mm. And then uh, they kind of blame it on India. Mm. Everything is about India and, and they blame it on India and India did this and India did that and India did not act honestly and India went behind and and it's it's basically their their discourse how they justify uh, these um... how much how much is this directly because this of course from an institutional perspective I can understand it how much is this also based on real uh, religious idea because you know Pakistan was founded on uh, on the basis of Islam. So how much is it, so to call it, the hate for non-Muslims? How much is it based on, on religion? I don't think it's that much based on religion. Uh, I think there is a, so you're right. I mean, the, the identity of Pakistan is very much uh, entrenched in Islam, but it's a non-Hindu uh, Islam, but it's not, um, against non-Muslims, uh, if, you, if you get what I mean. So in, to my opinion, it's not about religion. It's really about power and about how you, uh, how the, the military institution tried to keep that power. And yes, using religion works because using religion works everywhere for anything, right? But it's not about religion per se in my mind. It's really just the discourse that is used because it actually talks to the people. If you, if you bring the religious ingredient into the mix, it mm -hmm. talks to people and there is no nuancing, no rationalizing about religion. It's not possible because it's your religion, it's your beliefs. So wh what are you going to do about it? Are you going to you know, um, question your beliefs or, or recognize that maybe the other has uh, different beliefs, but is right as well. It, it doesn't work that way. So it's actually a very strong argument to use in this adversity against India. Uh, just like uh, India, Indian politicians, especially today, use this argument against Muslims. There's a very strong uh, nationalist Hindu 
uh, discourse in India today. And that talks to the people because it's the identity, it's the, the, the very core beliefs of their identity. And it's not something that we can rationalize or we can talk about uh, calmly and with nuance. So uh, to my mind, religion here is just a, is a tool. pretty good rhetorical tool, basically. Now, you, uh, you, you mentioned the, 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 the Soviet-Afghan war, which according to Pakistani military officials, they won. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, they, I, think, I think together with the Americans, uh, as long as you can call it a win because Afghanistan is still in a mess. Uh, and coming to, and th that is a story that everyone knows, of course, what happened uh, during that time, how uh, US and, and Saudi money was uh, used, um, well, through, through Pakistan and its intelligence agency to fund the Mujahideen. Um, and now we're back at the same thing. Um, um, would you say they consider this a win as well? I think they do, yes. I think they do. They, the group that they considered their ally, that they nurtured, that they protected, that they're financed, financed they, they trained, they, they helped um, hide and, and rebuild is back in power. So yes, definitely, they do consider it a win. Against the Americans. Against the Americans, yes. Okay. So that is a very, yeah, well, that's a, you know, let, let's talk about that a little. Let's talk about the difficult marriage between Pakistan and America. Um, so they fought with the Americans against the Soviets. And like you say, they supported, nurtured, uh, arm trained a group which now fought against the Americans and they considered this as a win as well. How does that marriage work then? Oh, like a very bad marriage. They are cheating everywhere sideways. <laughs> it's a catastrophe. <laughs> no, actually, I, I like the, this image of marriage. It's, it's an image that is often used to talk about um, the US and Pakistan. I find this extremely interesting that we talk about it like that. This is a highly dysfunctional marriage, let's be clear. And, and I think it's based on so many misconceptions about the two countries and, and, and misunderstandings about the two countries. Uh, Pakistan is acting very clearly when you put it on paper, it's just going the two ways. It's, it's taking the two roads and, and, and we don't want it to, we, the, the West, uh, um, America and its allies, we don't want it to. We, don't, we want it to take one road, but let's face it, we're talking about international relations here. And in international relations, we're always taking every road that's will, um, that will help us reach and protect our interests. That's what Pakistan is doing. It, uh, it's very poorly, should I add, but it's what it's doing. It's trying at the same time to keep America happy, happy enough to keep on getting the finances for, for its strategic rent, basically, because the money that, that America pours into Pakistan helps Pakistan have a, such a strong military. And, and, and for the military to regain, to, to maintain its power in Pakistan, it needs American money. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, one element. But at the same time, Pakistan is right next to Afghanistan. So it can't afford to alienate the strongest Islamic group in Afghanistan. It can't afford to just cut ties with the Taliban. And especially because doing so would actually 
um, kind of help or play the game of India. So that's just a thorn in India's foot. And every single thorn that in India's foot is a gain for Pakistan. So it keeps on taking those two roads, but it's doing so, so openly, should I say, because everybody knows that it's, it does that. And everybody knows that he's been doing that for a long time now. And this, this strategy of trying to play on the two, uh, on the two sides is actually um, not helping Pakistan's situation at all. It's making it extremely unstable inside and outside it's making it, uh, we, we basically see it as a deviant state because it's doing something that it shouldn't be doing. We, we pose a very normative judgment on what Pakistan is doing. And we consider Pakistan as abnormal, deviant. And precisely it's also because it claims to be an ally, but it actually takes the other route and, and supports our adversaries. So that doesn't work, right? To my reading, it's doing what a lot of countries are doing. It's just trying to protect its interests. But does it really protect it? Protect its interest because, uh, yes. Although Pakistan has been, you know, has has created the Taliban, sponsored them, and also other terrorist groups, which we will come to. Uh, but it has also, of course, um, meant that internationally it is viewed as a pariah state. It is on the foot of uh, FATF great gray list. Mm -hmm. um, its its GDP is sinking. Its its inflation is very high. There are terrorist attacks within Pakistan on civilians, even on the army. We we will just commemorate uh, on the 16th of December that infamous attack on the on the children uh, on the army school. So is it really in their interest? Oh no, it's not. It's not. It's definitely that it's how they perceive their interest. Mm. So um, it's it's how they define their interest. Now, their interest is definitely not that. Their interest is definitely to stop sponsoring the Taliban in Afghanistan. That's their interest. They they have no interest in actually nurturing these relations with Islamist group. They need to cut these ties. You, you mean need the interest of the people of Pakistan? I'm sorry. You mean in the interest of the people of Pakistan? In the interest of the of the people of Pakistan, but the country as a whole, the for the country to actually work, to actually function, for for them to be a in, an integrative part of the international system, they need to be stable, at least stable, and and that requires for them to come to terms with the fact that what they've been doing is not working because it's making them worse every single year. It's making them worse. So the, the situation is kind of it's kind of hanging in there, but you know, every once in a while it's like you're you're kind of, I don't know, cutting their feet and they fall and then they come back up and but it's not stable. So it's so their 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 interests, how they, they define their own interest is just against India. And that's extremely not only narrow-minded, but that's not accurate anymore. In today's international system, it's not accurate anymore, but that's how they see their interests. I, I would say India has stopped thinking of Pakistan as its main adversary, and it's mainly looking probably towards China. Yes. yes. Um, so, but, but when we come back to this, now, now that they are, they are in power, you say they should work uh, in a different way, they have been doing this this way. Will it change now that they're 
friends, allies, and their proxies are back in power in Afghanistan, will it change? And do you think uh, the Taliban will be able to keep power? Because many people are saying they will not. In Afghanistan itself, I actually doubt that the, the Taliban will be able to maintain their um, their control over the whole country for uh, a long time. Um, now, it depends on the time frame that you're asking me. Um, maybe two, three, four years, maybe, but longer than that, I, I don't feel I don't see that happening. Uh, it really will depend, I think, on on the ability of the Taliban to open cash flows. Uh, if money pours into uh, Afghanistan, there will be um, increasing economical opportunities, not for the people, but for the Taliban and for the countries who don't really care about the population, the Afghan population. And that will actually, from, from a very realistic point of view, help stabilize the country. The, the population will be incredibly poor and, and frankly miserable, but the, the country itself will be more, might gain stability enough to actually kind of function more or less. Uh, that, that's already the case in other countries, uh, you know, where the population suffers a lot, but the country itself is stable enough to, to actually function as a full member of, of, the, of international politics. Um, so, so that's that for, for Afghanistan. Now for Pakistan, if you turn to Pakistan, considering the situation, I don't see them cutting ties with the, the Taliban anytime soon, because really in their mind, it's, it's a win. So they have no reason, no incentive today to actually cut the ties. I think what we need to understand about Pakistan, and, and that is probably what, um, what is most interesting about this country, uh, in, in my view, is that it's not simply a, a case of adversity vis-a-vis -vis India. It's a case that the, the identity of Pakistan is built on not being India that it's in, it's in their DNA, it's in the very identity of the country. And the, the, the first question that I asked to my interview is when I was there was, what does it mean to be Pakistani? And only one person told me something different from it's about being not Indian. All of them told me it's about, we're not Indian. Okay, that does not define someone, mm -hmm. but it defined them. And, and I think we need to understand that because if we don't understand that, we don't understand how much Pakistan as a state today needs to be not India. And that means keeping this adversity alive because it's part of their identity. If they're not, if they don't have this adversity, what is Pakistan? How do they define themselves? And that, I think that's where they're missing something. And that, that actually questions the whole, the whole cohesion of society. Because the two nation theory, of course, uh, went out of the window in 1971. Uh, so yeah, indeed, what, what do you define your, your, your identity? Which is very strange because, you know, um, speaking from experience, uh, Lahore and Old Delhi are practically the same thing. You wouldn't even notice in which country you are. And that goes for the two Punjabs as well. Mm -hmm. If you would be in either one of the place, uh, you would not notice where you are. Um, but you talk about the fact that they will not drop, uh, coming back to Afghanistan, they will not drop the Taliban and they're very happy with them. You know, there have been suggestions that they might not be very sure about the Taliban and that's why the induction of the Haqqani network into 
the Taliban's uh, government or interim government or their ranks has been has been has been uh, masterminded by the military. Is that is that true? I I don't think it is. I think it's a bit too um, um, too clear cut to be to be true. Uh, and, and I think we tend to see the the Pakistan influence on the Afghan Taliban um, as being much more important than it actually is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Afghan Taliban are an independent group from Pakistan and from the Pakistani army. So, uh, and we have seen that uh, in time, you know, like in, in 2008, when the, the Pakistani military arrested uh, Baradar and he was... Uh, Put in jail. That was actually a signal to the Taliban to tell them, "You do not do things that we don't want you to do," and that was because the Taliban were actually thinking about uh, discussing and negotiating with the Afghan government at the time. That was a signal, but that shows that the Pakistani Taliban does not uh, the sorry the uh, Pakistani military does not have that much uh, power or as much as we would be led to believe in the media. So I don't think that they, uh, it, it might have been a suggestion and I, I don't have any insight on this, on this subject. It might have been a suggestion, it might have been discussed, but it's not an imposition from the Pakistani military because that would not have worked. Hmm. But there was, there was uh, we talked uh, last month, we talked to Afrasiab Katak and uh, we also read it a few times in, in the news that there, there seemed to have been a clash between the Haqqani network and the Taliban, while at the same time, the previous uh, ISI chief was in Kabul. Uh, do you connect these things or is it just coincidence? No, I, I don't really believe in such things as coincidence. So I think there is a connection to be made. Now, what connection exactly? That that much, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. So I wouldn't want to... Uh, influence our, our viewers into thinking something that I'm not absolutely certain about. Um, it is true that there are some clashes within the Taliban ranks, but this is something that we already know and that we knew would happen before it actually happened, because there are some very stark differences about how uh, they uh, think about uh, governing and they think about relations with uh, external actors, etc., within the Taliban. And, and this is something that's always been there. There's always been some different branches and different views, some more extremists, some more moderate, although I'm not really comfortable with this uh, this kind of uh, um, qualificatives, uh, extremism and, and moderations, but um, there are some very different point of views. Now, the ISI has an interest in making sure that the Taliban do not uh, get basically too friendly with the US because that's actually the leverage that the Pakistani military has over the Taliban is the fact that the Taliban need them. They need the military because they are very much ostracized from the rest of the world. So as soon as they are integrated into the world, the Pakistani military loses this leverage. Mm. They can't really afford for the, for the Taliban to, um, to, to have peaceful and friendly relations with the rest of the world. Although I, I don't see in what world that would happen in any case, it's not in the advantage of the military in their point of view, of course. And you know, you have, you have, you have put a lot of, uh, you've emphasized many times the fact that 
the, the mindset, the national ethos in Pakistan is very much anti-India or not being Indian. Um, now that the Taliban is in power, now that the Haqqani network is part of, of, of this arrangement, um, how much do you think of this, you know, of these battle hardened terrorists uh, will look for uh, new uh, area or, or areas other than Afghanistan to, to uh, continue their jihad? How, so uh, a twofold question. One is, do you think that the, that the Taliban or Afghanistan or terrorist extremist groups over there, whether the Haqqani network or whoever, will be used from Afghanistan against India? And secondly, do you also see, because you just said that the Taliban might be able to, to be in power for a few years. So what do you see ending that power streak? Is that another 9-11? I, so I, I'm gonna start with the second question. I don't think an, uh, it would be another 9-11. I think it would be a disintegration of their unity. What makes them strong? What made them able to, re to gain power that quickly uh, this summer? was that they were one cohesive group working towards one goal and they were, there was this unity uh, within the ranks. Now that they're in power, and we saw that with the clash between Bahadar and Hakani, now that they're in power, all the differences, all the divergences of opinion in the Taliban are coming to light and that makes them at risk of disintegrating. And that would lead to, to them not being able to run the country anymore. So to, to me, that would be, uh, that probably uh, would be the reason why the Taliban would not stay in power. Um, coming back to your first question, um, which I forgot, I'm sorry, I got caught up in the second question. Well, do, do you see the Taliban or Afghanistan being used by the military against India, especially, you know, they have been involved in the issue of Kashmir. Yes. They have been involved in Punjab with the Khalistanis. So do you see that flaring up again? Probably, probably because um, maybe not directly from the Taliban themselves, but the Taliban, as I said, we tend to see them as one um, cohesive group and, and they're not. Uh, there are so, so many differences within the groups, and there are a lot of, of uh, affiliated groups. So the, the core Taliban leadership might not support um, efforts against India, but affiliated groups definitely could. And, and the Akani Network is a great example of that. Mm -hmm. They would definitely uh, support uh, operations against India. So we might ev um, eventually see um, other groups or affiliated groups to the, to the Taliban uh, turn against India and start uh, sponsoring operations against India, and especially, um, especially today in the current Indian context, where the nationalist discourse is so strongly anti-Muslim, and there are a lot of discriminations in India happening against the, the Indian Muslims, and that could really trigger something within the Taliban themselves, even without the interference of the of the Pakistani military, because there's a a solidarity that could, you know, be felt uh, for uh, Indian Muslims and, and the need to protect them and, and to, or to defend their interests. 
So the least you see happening is maybe not the Taliban itself packing their bags and going to Kashmir, but letting other groups use their infrastructure, their weaponry, and probably their ideological bases. Exactly, exactly. Coming to these other groups then, you um, of course saw recently that um, you had these huge protests by the Terikela uh, back Pakistan, the TLP, uh, calling for the French ambassador to be to be to be sent home, of course, which also ended up in a lot of violence. Um, and at some point of time, the Pakistani military, the Pakistani government, uh, proscribed this organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they banned it. Mm-hmm. Um, later on, they of course went and signed an agreement with it. Uh, which ended the violence, and I think the the, the the details of the agreement are not made public, but the, the violence has ended. Now, we'll come back to the TOP. What, what, what I find interesting is that uh, the government prescribes an organization and signs an agreement with it later on, where in the press conference, the foreign minister of the government is also sitting on the, the, on the table uh, or at the desk, we have seen many terrorist extremist groups being banned in Pakistan, like the Lashkar-e-Toiba, like Jashi Mohammed, many others. So how seriously should we take that by going the, with the example of the TOP? So I think, uh, I think there are two, uh, two elements to keep in mind. The first element is that uh, some groups are actually uh, seen by the the government and the military as um, as potentially destabilizing the country or actually destabilizing the country. And those those groups uh, definitely uh, cannot be uh, nurtured. But there are other groups that are seen as strategic assets against India and the Lashkar-e-Taiba is actually a great example of that. So the banning of those groups uh, to me, is more a, a kind of a, a showing off to the international community. See, we're doing our part. We're doing our part in the in this uh, war against terrorism, and and we're trying to ban those groups, and we're trying to curb um, terrorism. And I think that's what we saw. Now we have also to keep in mind that Pakistan, as it is today, can't afford to just go against all these groups. It would be way too destabilizing to have all of these groups turn against the country. And I think that's exactly what we saw. They proscribed the group, but violence ensued and, and they couldn't see an end to that violence except negotiating with them because there was no, no end to be seen apart from that. So I think that's actually strategically for the, for the country itself. I think that was a smart move just to try and curb the violence because they had no choice but to do that and to open the flows of negotiations with those groups uh, and with the TOP in particular in this case. So uh, that's how I read the situation, basically. These are, these are Frankenstein's monsters. Exactly, exactly, they are. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so in essence, it's like the military, um, keeping its military interests in mind, created these groups on them and now keeping the military's interests in mind, they can't even abandon them. So they, they have to live with them. Yep, exactly. 
And that's actually part of why they have to keep up the discourse of, of adversity against India, because if they don't, mm-hmm. what's going to happen with these groups? The, 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 these people are, are there, they're radicalized. You can't just turn them off and, and switch off the, you know, the, the radicalization part. They're there and they're, they're ready to fight. So you have to give, to give them an enemy. If India is not there anymore, who are they going to fight? So how do you see the world dealing with this because they've dealt with it uh they've dealt with in the war on terror they've dealt with it for 20 years how do you see that panning out in the coming years because i i believe at some point of time the world might say well enough is enough i'm not that sure because it has been saying repeatedly enough is enough to pakistan and yet apparently is not enough is not enough to Pakistan. And they keep on on behaving exactly the same way and they keep on having the same policies. So I think we'll probably keep on on having the same, more or less, the same cycles of violence, negotiations, uh, pressures, sanctions, uh, reliefs, et cetera. Uh, But we have to keep in mind that um, whether whether it's right or not, whether it's exact or not, the US will not basically just turn their back on Pakistan because Pakistan is a nuclear state and they cannot afford to, in their view, in the American view, they cannot afford to risk these nuclear weapons falling into the wrong hands. And that is the reason why, number A, why the US keeps this, keeps being in this marriage basically and hasn't asked for a divorce because they can't afford uh, to risk those nuclear weapons. And that is Pakistan's main leverage. And that's why we've been going on this kind of weird dance for such a long time and that this dance will actually keep on going. So if the economy of the country completely crumbles, it will get funds because a very unstable country economically, a very poor country economically does not have the money to maintain control and command of its nuclear weapons. So it can't completely- So its strategic location is its main asset? Strategic location and nuclear weapons. It's it's a leverage. It's a leverage against India. It's a leverage for the US against and with the US, with the EU now, with China and Russia. It's It's their main main card. Like you can't abandon us. You have to give us money. You have to care about us. You have to talk to us and you can't sanction us too hard because, you know, we're nuclear. Remember? (laughs) No, that's it's it's again, it's it's a very nice bridge to to where I wanted to go. You mentioned, of course, China. Um, You know, I would say recently you have seen that the Chinese Pakistani relationship has, of course, been uh, on the highs uh, for, for the last few years. There is this BRI, uh, part of the BRI, the CPEC project going on. There is huge funding coming into Pakistan from uh, funding loans uh, for, from China. So, you know, even with this new relationship, uh, will the Americans and the West start caring less or will they actually start caring more? I think it will uh, really depend on, on the, the direction that, that Pakistan takes in terms of uh, internal stability. Now, 
with the, the, the geopolitical competition between China and the US, the US can't really afford to basically give over to China its allies. And, and Pakistan today is kind of sitting in the middle of them both. And it's a country that we could call swing state in the sense that it could basically go support US leadership or support Chinese leadership. And the US will try to, to maintain uh, this support, to, to keep this support for themselves, but to a certain extent, I believe. Uh, and, and China, I think, partly already considers Pakistan kind of in its, on its side of the geopolitical competition, uh, but it could be surprised by the extent to which Pakistan actually turns, keeps turning to the US for recognition, for support, for, um, for normalization. That, that's what they, they try in Pakistan. They really try to be accepted as a normal country by Western states. And that's their reference group today and still is their reference group. And as long as it is, China doesn't have Pakistan completely on its side. Um, now, that will also depend on how the situation in Afghanistan will unfold. Because if, if at some point the situation in Afghanistan is a threat to um, US interests, direct US interests, then Pakistan will once again become incredibly important, one of the most important allies to the US. So that will much depend on that. Uh, don't you think that Afghanistan, if it goes the bad way or the wrong way, that it could become much more of a threat to Chinese and Russian interests than it would to American interests? It depends which worst way we're talking about, I think, uh, because the, the group- like For example, the Taliban, you, you talked about the Taliban looking towards Indian Muslims or looking towards Kashmir. What if the Taliban starts looking towards the Uyghur Muslims? True, and that's uh, one, actually part of the, of the reasons why China has been so uh, engaged in discussing with the Taliban is to try and, and, and cut that, uh, that possibility right from the start. Uh, I, don't, I think the Taliban are, um, will be smart in the, on that. And I don't, I don't see them, um, uh, how, how can you say, um, nurture and, and try to, uh, to support groups that would act against Chinese Uyghur because it's not in their interest. Their interest is for China to give them money, to give them money to access to access their mines and their their deposits, the, the, the natural resources that Afghanistan has. So um, I, I don't think that's uh, a, dire, a, a realistic risk. Now it could be seen as a risk by China and Russia, but that's why they've been so much diplomatically engaging with the Taliban because they try to cut that. And I think the Taliban realize that, uh, and and realize that they will need Russia and China on their side. Uh, because they probably won't get the U.S. on their side. <laughs> so they will need China and Russia, two countries that could actually really back them up because those are two countries that don't really care about human rights and, and democracy. Yeah. So it, it could work. It could work for them. And um, now coming back to, of course, the internal, you, you, have, you have in the beginning talked about the civilian leadership in Pakistan. And you, you very interestingly mentioned that even when there were civilian governments, the army was running the show. Mm 
um, now you have a civilian government in, in, in Pakistan. It's many call it a hybrid uh, government. So basically saying that the army is running the show. Um, do you see that changing? Do you see a leadership? Because yes, the People's Party might have at some time worked together with the army. Yes, Nawaz Sharif has, but things have changed. Do you see these two parties or others like the Pashtun movement, for example, putting up a credible uh, force against um, this hybrid government? Do you see that happening? I actually do see it happening very little by very little, but I think it is happening that the, the civilian government is able little by little to, to kind of try to disentangle uh, the, the military from domestic politics. Um, I see that happening on certain issues, but not on everything. And there are some issues that are extremely difficult for them to disentangle the two. Uh, and in particular, in all external relations, um, all the policy vis-a-vis uh, -vis India, vis-a-vis -vis Afghanistan, vis-a-vis -vis the US is very much still uh, within the military's uh, ranks. And, and when the civilian government goes another way, they get reminded of that quite quickly, that they're not the one in control and the one on the driving seat is the military. But I do see some changes and, and especially among the population because the population is tired of that situation and is tired of having um, quite regularly, frankly, um, military coup and is tired of having a weak civilian governance. So because this, uh, this is uh, growing in the population, the support for change is there. And I think uh, among the civilian leadership, they start to realize that and they start realizing that they can, you know, take from this support uh, as, a, as a leverage against the military to try and, and, and make things change. So it's, it is changing, but it's gonna take a long, long time uh, in my mind to, to, to change uh, really and, to, and for us to actually see, uh, to be able to uh, label Pakistan with uh, another label than a hybrid regime. Mm. And, and you know, you say that people are tired and people are looking towards other options, but you also don't see that on the, you know, you see huge protests by the TOP. Yeah. Uh, and apart from the, apart from political protests, you don't see social protests by the, by the nuanced civilian population you are talking about. So you don't see uh, a, po a population coming out against the TLP. So how do, you, how do you explain that? Is that the fear for repercussions or is that, is that just socially not acceptable? I think it's socially it's not acceptable. And I think there's this belief that social manifestations are reserved for, for specific kind of things and specific kind of groups in Pakistan. So social manifestations like that are not for the population to, to show their discontent basically. And the discontent is there and, and it doesn't mean that it's not, um, it's not present, just mean that it's not obvious basically, but it's there. Um, and, and I think the, the, the social um, media um, not not not, uh, not in in Facebook, Twitter terms. There's just the the way the channels of social communications 
are saturated in Pakistan. Everybody has something to say on anything in, in every single divergent way that we can imagine. So basically, it doesn't leave a lot of, uh, of channel of communication, of possibilities for the discontent to express. But it's there, and it finds other ways, alternative ways to express itself, apart from social manifestations. And then how, how much do you think this change should be done bottom up? So first of all, changing one of the most important things and one of the most, uh, one of the things which are most, I would say, systems which are most corrupted in Pakistan is of course the education system. Um, you have three tiers of education. So one is the private education, the government education, and of course the hugely uh, madrasa education. So how much needs to change there from a social level? Well, in, in terms of um, analytically, in terms of political science and sociology, education is at the very uh, roots of how the country builds itself and, and defines itself, right? So if you don't have a coherent educational system, I mean, you, you can keep uh, a, a differentiated system. In Belgium, we do have a differentiated system, but it has to be built on the same basis and it has to be built on the same ideas and the same the same values. And, and that's the, the problem today. So I do believe that the, the movement has to be bottom up because it has to come from the people. If the people themselves don't want things to change, why should it change? But the people here, they do want things to change. And it has to come from them. And for a country to, to be as representative of its population as possible, the country has to be built from the population. That, that's the very basis of, of a democratic regime. So, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not here defending democracy at all costs because it's just, it's not the best regime. It's just the least worst regime that we have. But we have to establish that it's better than what Pakistan has today. And, and these movements, I think they can come from the top, from the civilian leadership, but it has to meet with the bottom up uh, movement as well. At, at some point, they have to meet in the middle to actually uh, work against or, or push back the military. But they also have to integrate the military in this change, and they have to integrate the religion in this change. They can't make enemies of all the social movement that they want, don't want. They can't make enemies of everybody. It's not going to work. If they don't work with the military, if they don't work with the religious uh, leaders, they're not going to get anywhere. No, you see, what you see is that you say that there is a pushback sometimes. You have seen that in Pakistan, that suddenly, you know, you have people like Nawaz Sharif, albeit in London, but still talking very uh, hardly against the military. You have seen that with the Pashtun Tahafus movement. You've sometimes seen that with the judiciary as well in Pakistan. But you've always seen, like you also mentioned, you've seen that very quickly they're reminded of who is, uh, who is the boss. Yeah. Um, but which of these groups, so the judiciary, the Pashtun Tahafus movement, the civilian leadership of the PPP and the PMLN, um, or just the civilians from bottom up, which of these groups do you see, you know, really getting to a point to, to challenge the, the current system? Or do you think they all have to work together? I, well, they... Ideally, they do have to work together. Now, I, I'm not sure the judiciary would be all that efficient because granted they do 
try and push back against the military, but they, they actually kind of comply extremely fast and they tend to work with the military and in support of the military much more than they tend to push back against the military. So I don't see the judiciary as being such a strong ally, let's say, in, in, in these changes and possible changes in, in, in Pakistani politics and society. I think the, the strongest force that Pakistan has its population is incredibly resilient, strong and hopeful population. And they have to build on this population, those, those popular values and, and beliefs and hopes uh, to, to try and, and those the established groups for the, the ones that you mentioned, those established groups have to work with the population and for the population because if they don't they will keep on being seen as just specific groups you know not representative of the whole and that that's what the pakistan needs representative of everybody and what should happen with what should happen with the lashkars the jesh which you say they can't abandon they can't keep them alive to to bring about these changes well so what should happen to uh, to 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 friends like Hafiz Sayed and and Masood Azhar and all these friends, should they just be put in jail, or what should they do? Fr frankly, I I'm not sure I have the answer. Uh, I think I think they need to they need to to kind of neutralize them, but they can't just put them in jail because that will actually create discontent in another. Uh, part of the population, so they can't just put them in jail and, and lock the you know lock the door and throw away the key and okay we're done and and we'll forget about them. It's not going to work. Um, we, with the situation today in Pakistan, you you have to talk to everybody, and that's why I said when when I mentioned the military, you have to talk, including with the military, and you have to talk with everybody, with the the opposition and with the religious side, and because if you don't, they're going to push back, they're going to fight against against the change and 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 that's not going to be helping anything probably the indians will say you can send them here and we'll know what to do with them yeah that's true probably <laughs> we're waiting with a list uh, to, to get these people um so for now as you know we were coming to an end of of, of this very interesting interview where, where we have you know a lot of things are, of course, known, but the intricacies, I think, and the sensitivities you have explained of this, of this very hard country to understand, uh, those are very interesting. And, and the, the biggest takeaway I, I, I think I have from it is that still 75 years almost after independence and for centuries being part of, you know, India or British India or how you may call that according to you, many of these people still define their identity as being non-Indian, um, which is, you know, which is fascinating because of course there are also Muslims living in India. Uh, this was also part of, of the same country. They were the same people. So this is a very interesting thought. So, but don't you believe, and, and that's probably, you know, because I would like to end on, on, a, on a good note. <laughs> Don't you think that the least or, or the less Pakistanis keep identifying themselves as non-Indian, the better for the region, the better for the country, and that eventually 
piece, like you say, also from the military's part, the, uh, the military taking a backseat will only come when Pakistan makes its peace with India. Definitely. I couldn't agree more. Um, the, the Pakistani identity, reducing the Pakistani identity to being anti-India, when, when you... When you're in Pakistan, when you discover this richness of culture, the when you walk down the streets of Lahore, just thinking, how how can you simplify all of that to not being India? There's so much more to being Pakistani than that, and and this is the most important work I think that Pakistan needs to do is to understand its identity for what it actually is, not for what it believes it to be. It's not about not being India. India is, a, is part of their identity because they share, they, they share the territory and, and they share a region and they share so much, so much. And, and, and their, the identity, the Pakistani identity is a work of fusion, you know, it's a work of, of so many different influences that cross the country and there's so much more. Uh, so I really do believe that it's the crux of the problem here. And it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of courage to really address that issue. But it can be done. It can be done. The, the, the Pakistani people have so much strength in them in them, and so much resilience. I'm, I'm positive that it can be done. Now it has to have the willingness to do it. But the strength, it does have it. It, 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 I wanted this to be one of my last questions, but now that you come up with this, I find it very ironic, and I, and I think you will agree with me, that the Pakistani identity, like you said, should be based on much more than just being not Indian. While it's very ironic that many Pakistanis within Pakistan identify themselves as not being Pakistani. Uh, <laughs> True. <laughs> or or not, not being Punjabi. Uh, because you have the Pashtuns, you have the Baloch, uh, you have people which are under their control, which is part of Kashmir, for example. You have the Sindhis. So while they, while you say that they should work towards an identity which is much more than not being Indian and which is being Pakistani, how do you do that where within your own country, except for the Punjabis, not many consider themselves Pakistanis? Yeah. I, I understand your question. I think we have to, uh, to keep in mind that identity is not a single factor. It's a multifactorial um, phenomenon. And, and a, actually a good example is that is where I am based. I'm in Belgium. And, and in Belgium, you're Walloon or you're Flemish or you're in the German community or you're even Brussels. There are some very strong um, regional identities in Belgium. It doesn't stop the Belgian population from feeling and from being Belgian as well. It's just that depending on where you are and who you're talking with and, and the context, one, one aspect of your identity will be stronger and, and will come forward. So inside Pakistan, you will feel more um, as, a, as a Baluch or as a, a Kashmiri or as a Punjabi, but outside of Pakistan, you will feel like a Pakistani, you know? and. And outside of South Asia, you will feel like a South Asian maybe. And, and I think this is something that we need to acknowledge. It's not a contradiction in terms. It's, and, and that's why I said that Pakistan identity is a fusion because it's also a reconciliation about all those ethnic groups. Pakistan is multi-ethnic and, and, and it's part of its identity and it's part of its richness. So it has to be acknowledged as part of Pakistani identity. So yes, 
we are Punjabi or we are Sindhi or we are Pashtun, but we are also Pakistani. And it, it, one does not nullify the other. Yeah, so probably the, 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 the stress on being Pakistani as being a Muslim should be different than it should be you are Pakistani because you are Baloch or because you are Sindhi. Exactly, exactly. And exactly. for that, of course, apart from social engineering, uh, bottom up, uh, one thing which is, of course, very important would be then also the economic restructuring of the, of the country. Exactly, uh, exactly. Much of the wealth is concentrated, of course, in just one province. Um, and, and, and like you said, you are hopeful that someday it will happen, but it will take many, many years to come. Yes. <laughs> Dorothy, thank you very much. It was very interesting to talk to you. Like I said, it's a, it's a pity you couldn't come. But again, uh, in, in these times, it's, it's very difficult to, to plan that. But we hope that, uh, you know, it's not the last time we have, we have done earlier programs as well, also with you. So we hope that in the coming next year already uh, we can meet again and, and do this in person as well I would love to definitely thank you and thank you so much for inviting me thank you Dorothy and have a nice day stay safe thank you you too <laughs> all right bye